Good evening, everybody. Glad you're here. This is the beginning of a Bible study. We're going to go for 13 weeks, and different members of the staff are going to teach each week. I'll teach this week and next week, and then Terry will teach, and then I will teach a fourth week, and then just on through the 13-week course. It's going to be interesting to see all the staff members and their different teaching skills, their different approaches. So thank you guys for starting off with us tonight. Let's pray together and we'll begin. Lord Jesus, our eyes turn toward you. And we think about your life and as the scripture so accurately portrays it. And as we watch you, Lord, we learn so much about what it means to be righteous. We see in your dear heart all the patterns of what we must be. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that promises to come and live within us, to to replicate that life, to give energy to it. The old man inside of us resists and uh, makes excuses and runs and disobeys, but not you. The uh, Spirit inside of us is a righteous and a good Holy Spirit. So we welcome you tonight, and Lord, help us as we study your word. Uh, give, make it a sword that it is. It cuts through all of our conversations and gets to the heart of the matter. So we welcome you and we thank you in your name. Amen. When the incarnation came, the coming of Christ, we learned and the church began to say a really remarkable thing. It's a revolutionary idea, and it's not anything that anybody expected that we would be saying. All of a sudden, the church began to say that the purpose of a man's life is to become like Jesus. The the very purpose that God created you for was to become like the Lord. It was to replicate in every human heart that character that Christ is. He, he certainly is the new Adam in that way. Uh, the, old, the ancient said he came to be like us so that we could become like him. I'm not sure this microphone is going to help me. It's hard for us to hear who have been fed a steady diet in this enlightened world of you do you or you listen to your own truth, or you... Uh, here's how the world imagines it, that our meaning and our benefit would be found if I could just look more honestly and deeply inside me. That's how the world imagines it. That you're of value, and you're of value, and you're of value, and the way forward is to find you. And so you turn inward on yourself. And this is almost... Everywhere in our culture. Our culture thinks this at almost every level. And against that, then God says, no, that's not true at all. Uh, That's really a completely, it's a completely different reversal of that. That the way forward is up against an ideal or a model or a perfect man or the new Adam is what he's called that he would give birth to a new race of people and all of us at one level or another, replicates of him. Uh, The Bible says that there's just one melody that's going to be sung in the world, just one melody, and all of us find meaning in singing harmony to it. That's So what I'm telling you is 
it's in Christ that we discovered this. And the church then began to work this out later. They'll talk about this more and more and more, that we're all going to become like him. And that's not just sort of a curative thing that happens later. That was the purpose from the very start, that God made all of us to be like him in his righteousness, like him in his relationship to the Father, like him in his wisdom that we were going to become like him. And as a matter of fact, sometimes we talk about people that the purpose of God for the humanity is to be saved. But the church will say, no, you were saved so that you could become like him. You were reconciled, your sin debt paid. But that was only the beginning of that long process that you would be conformed. Well, read the scriptures. You will, you'll see uh, some of those listed. Uh, he also predestined us to be conformed, there it is, to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn but have so many replicates, so many brothers that are like him in his righteousness, in his relationship to God. Or 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now look this way, everybody. Uh, some of the ancients used to call that the exchanged life. You'll hear some of the old-time writers t talk about that way. That he traded his life for yours, took up your sin, and you are to trade your life for his and take up his righteousness. Go stand with him in his relationship to God, in his outlook on the world, in his service to others. You become like him. So consider, please, for a second what we are saying. Think about that. If that is true about your dear grandson, God's purpose for him is to be like Christ. The governor of our state, your neighbor, all people, the Bible says, have a shared script. Everybody has the same shared script. Uh, their meaning and welfare is in right relationship to Jesus. They are relative to him. Uh, that's what's being proposed tonight. Now, Stop for a second and think about the word right or righteousness. It's an absolutely huge word, absolutely huge word in the scriptures. Talk about being right. I always laugh in the, in the South, you know, if somebody, they would say, he ain't right. That, that guy, he ain't right. And that was just sort of a cover statement of anybody that had any problem. So in the same sense, God looks at the human race and says, they ain't right. They're, they're, they're not right relative to me, and therefore they're not right relative to each other or against themselves. So the, the cover concept for that is called righteousness, to be right with God, right with yourself, right with other people, right against his moral requirements. Again, on your listening sheet, uh, Jesus said he wanted to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. There it is. What I'm doing is because up against that ideal standard, that expectation of God, it is right for me to go be baptized. Um, look at um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. But what they want... Now, by the way, this whole Bible study tonight is largely works as a correction of our ambition. If... If God could say one thing that he thinks is wrong with the human race is that we want the wrong thing. 
We want meaning and purpose. We want joy. We want power. We want success. We want comfort or assurance. And we seek it in things. And God says it's a completely wrong ambition. What you should want is to be rightly related to me. Uh, to, it's a childlike relationship, a father and a child. It's a shared family relationship. You've been adopted into a family. But the deepest ambition of the human heart ought to say daily, that's what I want. That's what I want is this right relationship with God for both time and eternity. Uh, look at the second, all Scripture is, third, the, all Scripture is inspired. And it's profitable for what? To train you in righteousness. There's the word again, that, that, that you would be gradually more and more like Christ in outlook, in attitude, in action, and in choice. Okay? If followers of Christ would consider righteousness, then they must then begin to desire it. They must say, oh, that's the goal for my life is this new righteousness with God. Sometimes I'm afraid the teaching of grace has implied that righteousness is an old idea or a foregone conclusion. Watch me here, because you all know this teaching. You've felt it everywhere. By the death of Christ, the righteousness has been imputed to us, and it's the end of the story. Have you heard somebody teach on Jesus saying, it is finished? And you will hear him say what that means is everything is done. There's no more work. There's no more energy to be applied. The righteousness that was imputed to you in that is everything you need. And so the implied lesson... You can relax. You can rejoice. And from that sense of relaxing, rejoicing, obedience rises. I really think that's a misread. I think that's a misread on what the Scripture... Read Romans. Read the next Romans text. Um, So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us... Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's simply wrong to say all that legalism and all those rules and all that discipline that you were supposed to, that people used to put on you in the Old Testament, that's not part of the New Testament. That's not, not true. That's not true. What has changed in the New Testament is not what God expects of his people, it's how it happens. In the infilling of the Holy Spirit as he lives out his life, but it doesn't preclude discipline or effort or energy or obedience. Think of all the times the New Testament comes to you in terms of imperative verbs. Obey, be baptized, confess, forgive, give. All those are imperatives that imply human activity. What I'm teaching you tonight is the the what of God's expectation has not changed. The how has changed. That the Holy Spirit indwelling you can fill you and inspire you. But a a life of righteousness. I've heard recently somebody say, it's impossible for a Christian to sin. And I really wanted to say, what church do you belong to? (laughs) The idea is that it has been so fixed by Christ 
that now you just rest in that. There's no putting to death of the flesh. There is no careful. Uh, Even that, that night when that person was telling me, I said, well, what do you think Paul meant when he said then, I discipline my body lest I be disqualified. Paul knew that the sin in the church or the sin in the body is still very, very dangerous and has very dangerous consequences. So all that as we begin tonight our conversation on righteousness. Let me find myself in my notes. In the next months, one of the things that I have on my heart, and I believe this is of the Spirit, is a revival of holiness in our church. That we who have the righteous standing with God would then press on into holiness so that that purity of motive and action would allow the unbroken relationship with Him to have its way in our lives and to complete this work. It's not as if we're adding on to the work of Christ. We are doing it in accordance with what we think is faith. So tonight, um, because we expect that fight with sin to be very real, it's with real interest we watch our Lord as He deals with temptation. Watch this, dear ones. Watch Him. Watch this one you love. Here is righteousness in action. Here is what it looks like to be a godly man, what he's about to. By the way, the only way we could know this story is that Jesus told it. There wasn't anybody there to watch him. So he comes out of the wilderness and tells this story because he thinks it's relevant to all of our experience. Read with me. Let's read uh, the temptation of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, there's three of these, but just notice what the pattern is going to be. The devil is going to suggest a path, oh so subtle, that would be just slightly off center. Some slight adjustment. And these temptations don't even seem that bad to us. They don't, there's certainly not any gross moral failure in any of these sins. They're just subtle shifts off of a right relationship with God. And, and watch the Savior. You know how this goes. In times of temptation, life kind of telescopes down, and you have to remember what you know. You have to keep holding on to what you know. And so Jesus answers very clearly three different times as the tempter tries to just get him off, off center. Uh, keep reading. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, now interesting, here's the devil quoting scripture. 
He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, uh, he's going to lay Scripture beside Scripture. As we will say in our, our studies, you allow Scripture to, to interpret Scripture. Any question you have about Scripture, you find the other Scriptures that help balance and correct it. That's exactly what Jesus did. Uh, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said, go, Satan. And again, third scripture, Jesus will quote, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. The devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. There's a couple of words to intro. Temptations are not always avoidable for us. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not in a temptation. That means if that's possible. Because temptations are not always avoidable. The Bible says we are to flee temptations when we can. But hear me, sometimes it is God's will for us to face the demons and face the dangers and conquer them. What I'm teaching you is a more courageous faith than we usually hear. Sometimes it is clearly God's will for you to stop running. That thing that has been chasing you and biting you, you are to turn and face that thing, and that is, that is very much the Holy Spirit. And so in this story... The Spirit leads him into this. This is no mistake. This is no, oh, how did I end up in this unfortunate situation? This is the Holy Spirit of God taking him into this collision, this very necessary collision. In Genesis 22.1, it says God tested Abraham. It's the same word, nasah, to try or to prove as a matter of fact, paraizo in the Greek, the word that they'll translate, is used whether it is to test you in hope that you fail, which would, we would call temptation, or to test you in hope that you would succeed, which is to test. But they didn't have two words. It was the same word. And so, again, there are times where it is his will now for you to turn and face that thing. You know, when, you can, when you can run, you do. When it is not his will for you to run anymore, you don't. And I can't help you any clearer than that. You, you'll just have to know when those times are in your life. And it, it, that's what's going on here in the life of Jesus. Temptation number one. Yeah. No, I just want to... This is my summary. I you don't have to use it. But the first resolution of a righteous man, the first thing that he has decided to do is I'm going to wait on an answer from God. I'm going to wait on an answer from God. Because remember how our Lord would say, I, I do the Father's will. I don't do anything of my own initiative. The only way you can do that is if you commit yourself to listening for him, 
to hear his will. And so it, as, you, as you watch Jesus here as a picture of righteousness, the first thing that impresses you is that he has decided, I'm going to wait for God to tell me what he wants, the Father to tell me, and then, then I'm going to do. By the way, is that the hardest assignment you've ever had, is to wait on God? Because, I mean, after about five minutes, if he hasn't answered, I've got plenty of ideas. <laughs> and I, my old man rushes in to save those ideas. But this is 40 days and 40 nights. Most scholars believe that Jesus went out there. He, he knows he is the Messiah. He knows he is the Son of God. Clearly, Mary has told him those stories of his birth. Here, He has been baptized, and the Holy Spirit has come, and... The father has said, my son, and I'm well pleased. So he goes out there to say, well, what does that look like? What's my assignment? What, what, what does the Son of Man do? How do I go about saving the world? What is my assignment? So he goes out to wait on the father and commits himself to it. Um, by the way, if you think about it, you, don't, you have the same question. What does it look like to be you with Christ? What does it look like to, be, to live out your life, the years you have, the gifts you have, the salvation you have? You have that same question. And so Jesus goes out to the wilderness to ask the Father. At the weakest moment, he, he's so tired. Anybody here ever tell the Lord, I'm just too tired tonight? Anybody ever? I tell him that all the time. I, I'm, I'm too tired. So Jesus is so weary. You go 40 days without eating, you're pretty fragile. And it, the devil comes to him and just begins to suggest some answers. Rather than, con- here's his wicked voice, rather than continue to seek the Lord, he may not answer you. I'm not sure he's going to answer you. This has been an awful long time. Gosh, this hurts a lot. Everybody thinks you're weird. What's going on with you? However he's saying all these things. Rather than prolong this agony, why don't you use your powers to satisfy your need? It's so subtle you can barely even watch it. It's a new criteria for making your decision. Watch. Your answer is not there, Jesus. Your answer is right here. If you need something, go meet your needs. Use your power to meet your needs. It's the same thing that devil tested Eve with. Don't you think that fruit looks good? Don't you? He's, by the way, uh, the ancients used to say, the devil will never, hardly ever ask you to first to follow him. He'll ask you to follow you. He'll turn your attention to you, off of God and say, don't you think you need this? And so the slight shift is for, for the Savior to, to do it that way. A new criteria for his decisions, his first reference is self, his own needs. Start with self, he whispers to the human race. Organize your life around the pursuit of your own needs or your own success or your job or sex or food or friends or approval, 
whatever is the language of your success, whatever you want, listen to it. Make your decisions that way, okay? So here's a beautiful young single girl, and she gets tired of waiting for a godly husband. She meets a handsome non-believer and says to herself, doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Don't wait. Haven't I waited long enough? By the way, the longer you study the Scripture, the more bored you get with the devil because he's really not very innovative. He's been using these same lies a long time. But he says to her, "Mm, I don't think God's going to answer you. I don't think you can count on God anymore. I think that's unrealistic. He uses a thousand different... Here's a... Christian businessman, and he's tempted to dishonesty in business. He will say, your family needs you. Your family depends on you. A lot of people work for you. They need you. This is actually loving them to wander off into that gray area. Whatever he can do to keep a church like ours from saying, we believe you will guide us. We believe you will show us through your scripture by the Spirit. You will give us an answer, and it will be the best answer. Whatever he can do to fight you from that path, he will. And so the first temptation or the first resolution of a righteous man, he says, I'm going to wait on God's answer. And, and I will tell you, everybody, you know this, and I, maybe I'll take an amen if you got it for me. Until you have an answer from God, you don't have an answer. And I have people sometimes who say, I'm, I'm leaving Hunter's Glen. I'm going to go join another church. And I will say to them, and the Lord has given you permission to do this? And they'll look at me like I have a bird on my head. And they'll, th- <laughs> they'll say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And I would say, you're going to make one of the largest decisions of your life without finding the Lord's will on this? You're going to just listen to your own heart, your own logic here. And so the, the truth is the normal world operates there all the time. They make their decisions based on their own needs and their own logic, but not the church. The church, we will wait on the Lord, okay? And so Jesus' answer, well, it's just brilliant. He says, you know, man doesn't live by it. Just bread. If I just had bread, it wouldn't be the life I'm thinking about. And this is a 30-year-old man. He's absolutely brilliant. And he he quotes out of the manna story, out of the Deuteronomy story. He said, you know, you you don't, it's not just bread you need. Well, don't you just want to cheer him? I mean, what a righteous, childlike answer he says to this wicked one. He said, if I had something to eat, it's still not what this life needs. I've got to have him. And you know that he doesn't work on your same schedule, right? And so for him, four or five years is a pretty short time. And you say, I've been waiting forever. And he says, no. 
he, God, has been waiting forever. <laughs> we haven't been waiting. So the, the fact is, this gets pretty pricey, a decision. I will find the Lord. I will wait on him till he gives me an answer. Okay, keep going. We'll, we'll get through, and then I'm going to ask you to talk at your table. Temptation number two and resolution number two is I will honestly interpret his word. If Satan cannot get you to rush ahead with a word from God, without a word from God, he will tempt you to pretend that you do have a word by twisting Scripture. If he can't get you to rush on without a word, he will tempt you to believe that you have a word by, by just twisting Scripture. So in verse 6, Satan quotes or misquotes a verse from the Bible. Does it impress you how aware Satan is of Scripture? Just aside here. Everybody, the demons, when they would encounter Jesus, were very aware of the contours of the invisible world. They're very aware of who Paul was. They're very aware of who Jesus is. They're very. The demons, in many ways, are much more awake than humans are. They are very aware of what's going on. And in this case, he's aware of Scripture. He knows what the scripture says and kind of twists it just a little bit. And uh, Jesus' response is to set scripture against scripture to, inter to interpret correctly. So he says in verse 7, um, verse 7, he says, um, You shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Now, watch me. Putting the Lord to the test in the Deuteronomic context was asking God to prove or say something that he'd already proven or said. They would say, do you love us? Prove us. We need meat. Do you love us? Prove it. We need water. Do you love us? We need... And after a while, God got really tired of that because he said, I've given you more than enough evidence for you now to do this by faith. I've answered Ask and answer. I've answered that question already. And so putting him to the test is to push that one more time where he says, now it's become rebellion. Now it's become you just dadgum don't want to trust. And you just keep asking for... Anybody here ever asked for something from God that you already knew what he wanted, but it wasn't that? I see about two, two heads. I'm, I feel a little encouraged. <laughs> the idea here is that your, your heart will deceive even you. That you will, it sounds like a completely plausible thing to ask God. But you run that deep down, he's already answered that. You know what he wanted. It's just that you just wiped out the table and said, absolutely, I'm not doing that. So do you have a answer B? Do you have a, a suggestion B? And so um, he said, um, the, the devil tempts him with this, and he says, no, you know, I'm not going to tempt God. This is the one where he goes up to the temple and jumps off in some spectacular demonstration of God's care for him, and that's what it would be to be the Son of God. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. Third temptation and third resolution, I will worship God only. When Jesus rejects in verse 8 the offer of the world, 
high mountain, all these things I'll give you. It's again very subtle because the world is the goal. It's very subtle. Um, God so loved the world. And so you can see how a 30-year-old man could say, think of the babies I could save if I were in charge. Think of the wars I could stop. Think of the hungry people we could feed. Think of, you could get, your, you could get on down that road if you, if you allowed yourself. But you can never want something if wanting it or having it challenges the first principle of your life that you are to worship him. And so Jesus quickly runs back to, like I told you, when you're in real trouble, you just have to go back to what do you know? What do I know? What do I know? And Jesus said, well, I know is that you're supposed to worship God. You're supposed to love him, trust him. And so he, he turns that temptation down too. This is a play the Spirit will run with us again and again until you learn it. You cannot want other things more than you want God. You can't. By the way, the most terrible picture of that is Abraham in Genesis 22, where God says, I want your son. And he says, you're joking me. You're joking me. And there's no way Abraham could have understood what, we, what was in play here. But God, it was an act of friendship to say, I want you to feel what I feel, my brother. We're going to both let go of our sons. Or we're going to let go out of love for what's right. And so, but Abraham obeys. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. So Michael's saying, I'd rather have Jesus um, Sunday in the early service. That's what's being, uh, Jesus said, I'd rather have the Father. Now watch me here, everybody. Do you have those moments where you say, I don't care what happens. I don't care what the cost is now. I, I will worship the Lord. I'll call him first. I will love him with all my heart. I, I'm going to take my hands off of all of the circumstances in my life. I'm not going to worry about those things. What Jesus said, you seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and he by his own effect will put everything back in order that it was intended to be. That's an un, almost an unfathomable promise. God says, I'm telling you, you get this right and keep it right, and I'll make everything else fall back into place. So that's what's going on here. I will worship God, and I will worship him only. Um, my favorite picture of that is John 12, Mary, the night of the crucifixion, brings that alabaster bottle. And she's waiting past so many people that are discouraging her or judging her or thinking this is the wrong thing. I do think these days that a lukewarm world is pretty tough on real Christianity. I think a lukewarm world think, says to you, that's excessive. That's ridiculous. And yet you're really only coming close to a, a, a normal model. You're actually coming close to the norm of what it means to love God with all your heart. But the lukewarm world is pretty judgmental. And so Mary says, I can either worry about what you think or I can worry about doing what I, 
I think is right. I, I am going to get this to him. And that's, by the way, this is, this is my COVID sermon. In an age like this, the church is going to be built by people who do this not because they can find any comfort or safety in it, but because it's right. I am going to worship him. I am. I'm going to be cautious, but I am. So we, with great caution, but great courage, we build churches. We do. And, then, and so that's what is going on here. So let's do an exercise around the table. The three basic tasks of Bible study are observation, interpretation, application. You're answering three questions. What did I see or hear? What does it mean? And what should I do with it? And by the way, that's the, that's the most important part. That's the part that's usually left out. Because if you don't arrive at some conviction of what you should do with this, a new way to think, a new action, a new response, you've probably stopped too soon. So go. People around your table, answer those questions. What did you hear tonight? See, what does it mean, and what should you do with it?